Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, a brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up to you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Ephraim, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to your love in the Spirit. For this reason... Let's we'll stop whoops. this. It's all good. He's excited to get into the book right there. Amen. Let's just keep going. Thank you, Corey. The word of the Lord. Amen. A church of hope is the name of the message today. And as Paul begins this letter to the Colossians, we're going to see that they are a church of hope. Where does hope come from? (laughs) Have you thought about that? Where does true hope come from? It's a great question that this world has many answers for. People may answer that question by saying, our hope is in science. Maybe we will make the discoveries that we need. We'll find happiness. We'll find contentment. We'll find the medical advances that we need. Maybe medicine. Maybe there's hope in medicine. Maybe there's hope in government. I think people are starting to maybe, maybe not think so much of that anymore. Maybe there's hope in philosophy. Maybe that's really what we need to live a meaningful life and to be contented in life is just to have the right things to think. You know, pop psychology, just need to write, you know, to read the right book. Maybe the right self-help book is going to give us that which we need. Maybe there's hope in religion. Maybe there's hope in money. Maybe there is hope in relationships. If I just find the right person in life, I'll be contented, I'll be happy. If things just work out the right way with my kids, then maybe there's hope in education. If I just get all the degrees that I need, I'll finally feel like I'm somebody and something and I can do something. Where does true hope, lasting hope come from? We're going to find out in our message today. We're going to learn that true hope comes from what is disclosed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Paul introduces this letter, he thanks God because of the hope and because of what that hope produces in this church. And it's a beautiful letter. So we're beginning this new book today, the book of Colossians, and it is a New Testament book. The type of book is an epistle. Now, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a really, I didn't expect anybody to even laugh at that. This is amazing. (laughs) The word epistle is just a fancy word for letter. That's really all it means. Now, the Bible is, 
people look at it and they say, that's a book. You know, it's all in one between two covers. But really, the Bible is actually a library of books. It's actually 66 books all put together. And the two, there's really two main sections in the Bible, um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they, these divisions, this Old Testament and New Testament, very simply, the way to think about it is the Old Testament is before Christ and the New Testament is from Christ and beyond. Now, the Old Testament begins with creation. It begins with, you know, how God created the universe and how God created man. Then it goes quickly into the fall of man, how sin came into the world, how, uh, you know, the disobedience and the hatred and the murder and the lying and the perversion and all that stuff came into the world. That comes next. And then the results of that, which resulted ultimately in the separation uh, from God and disjointed relationships with one another. Then... The Old Testament zeroes in quickly on a family, and that family is important because the bloodline of that family, there will be one who will come to save man from his sins and restore that relationship with God and man and women. And so the Old Testament zeroes in on this family, and it traces this family line all the way down that's going to eventually produce the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. That takes us to the end of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament begins with the arrival of this long-awaited Savior, this Messiah of Jesus Christ. And then as you get into the New Testament, Jesus is revealed. You have the Gospels. If you see them there in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are different historical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. What he um, came, you know, who he is, what he came to do. He died on the cross and what he expects his followers to be doing, that they, he expects his followers to be making disciples and, and, and teaching uh, people to obey Christ. Then after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the early history of the church. Um, after Jesus ascended and went to the Father, the Holy Spirit came dwelled the church. And then Acts is the account of what the Holy Spirit did through the first Christians and how the gospel spread like all the world through, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and Christians. After Acts, in your Bible, you'll notice that come, they, they comes these different letters, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, <laughs> Ephesians, uh, you know, and so on. These are called the epistles, right? And Colossians is an epistle. After the epistles, you have this one unique book called The Revelation. And this book, The Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what that book is about is about the state of the church at the time when it was written. And it's also a prophetic look at the state of the church in end times, what will happen after the end of the world as we know it. Remember that song? It's the end of... And so that's found in the book of Revelation. And then it goes all the way out to what's going to happen in eternity. And so there you have a brief overview of the whole Bible. Now, Jesus comes and tells us what to do in the Gospels, that he died on the cross. Acts is the story of the early church. And then the epistles are letters to, typically to churches. And then to, also to individuals too. But most of them are to churches. And the reason they are there, most of them are corrective, right? You, you know what that's like from being a kid when you constantly needed to be corrected, right? And that's the, the purpose of the epistles a lot of times is to correct a problem that was going on in a church. Now, it's not always the case. Some of them are just Thanksgiving, and, and some of the epistles are written just to individuals. For instance, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, he's a pastor, gives him instruction. This letter of the Colossians is an epistle written to a church in a city named Colossae, and it is a corrective epistle. 
So you think, how does this relate to me? Well, you're a, a member of God's church. You're part of the body of Christ. And so when we read the epistles, we look for instruction of how we are to live as the body of Christ. And we're going to find that in this letter. When we were in the Gospel of Matthew, there are five different literary types, really, that we find in the Bible. Um, we find um, narrative. We find the epistles like this, which are um, considered to be like teaching, didactic is what they would call it. And then we have parables in the Bible, which are like metaphors in a sense. They're like, you know, earthly, like illustrations of heavenly truths. Parables are found all throughout the whole Bible. Then we have poetry in the Bible, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and then there's poems mixed throughout the whole Bible. Luke has a bunch of them. And then we also have the books of prophecy. When we were studying Matthew, that was a narrative book. And this being an epistle, you're going to notice a difference in styles, right? You guys remember Dukes the Hazard when you grew up? I used to watch that show. And it always had the narrator on there. That's narrative. Like he's telling the story. And that's what Matthew was doing was he was telling the story. This is more or less Paul as an instructor, pastor, speaking to a church. And so how you can think of this is the Holy Spirit speaking directly to you as a church member. And that's how I approach the epistles. Basic facts of the book, I'm just going to give you these quickly. We're not going to really go too far in depth with these. The author of the book is Paul the Apostle. This was a one-time persecutor of the church who became like the hardest working man in Christianity. I always like to be reminded of that because I was uh, not for Christ before coming to Christ, you know, and when I know that God could restore Paul and turn him into somebody useful, it makes me realize that he could restore me and turn me into somebody useful and you too. It's a good thing. So it's written by Paul, the, the apostle, the date of writing 62 AD, just to give you some perspective, this is roughly 30 years after the crucifixion. Because remember in Matthew, we looked at the crucifixion. This is about 30 years later. Now, some of you are thinking, I can't believe that there would already need to be correction in the church just 30 years after the crucifixion. Well, do you know why that happens? Because the church has people in it. <laughs> so, hey, there you go. That's the answer to that one. Why do they need to be corrected? Because there are humans involved. The audience who it's written to, it's written to the Colossian church. It's obvious let me tell you a little bit about Colossae, the city. It's 100 miles from Ephesus. I have some pictures on the map here I can show you if you just can kind of see that there. Um, Coloss, uh, Colossae is like right here. I'm just, this is the zoomed out view. Hey, there's the boot, right? That's Italy. And so here's Colossae, just to give you some perspective, okay? Um, down here, this is where the gospel of Matthew was taking place over in this area. And now here we are all the way out here. Um, if you want to go to the next slide, please. This is zoomed in a little more. Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis are part of what's called the Lycus Valley. That's the name of this river right here. Ephesus over here, that's about a hundred mile distance from those two. Okay, just to give you some perspective. This city, interestingly enough, is really insignificant, which is interesting that there's a book of the Bible written by the Apostle Paul to a place that is really just insignificant. If you think through that for a second, that speaks to the character of God because sometimes you feel like you're in an insignificant place. You think Mason City, Iowa, I mean, you know, it's pretty insignificant. I used to live in, you know, wherever else. And, but God is interested in people in insignificant places just as much as he's interested in people in other places. And so that's kind of 
I thought that was neat that Paul would write to just this little place. The purpose for writing this letter, although Paul did not plant this church, he was concerned for them and he loved them. So the main purpose was to deal with what people call the Colossian heresy. Now, heresy was creeping into the church, right? Um, false teaching was creeping into this church just, you know, 30 years after the crucifixion. And this philosophy that was, the, the false teaching that was, was moving in, it kind of looked like this. It, it looked like a mixture of Greek thought, of Greek philosophical, spiritual, spiritualism, sort of different uh, philosophical beliefs, ancient Greek sort of thinking, mixed with Jewish legalism, right? And the city of Colossae was, you know, BC was populated. A bunch of Jews were brought in there to settle. And by the time Paul's writing, you know, it was a mixed population between Jews and Greeks. And so you can imagine the pull back to those philosophies are starting to make their way into the church. In other words, the pure gospel of the church was being infiltrated by the thoughts of the world and the religion of the world around. And so... This problem was so serious that this guy, Epaphras, he made the 1,000 or so mile journey from Colossae all the way to Rome to talk to Paul and find out what to do. And so Paul wrote a letter to the church at Colossae telling them what to do. And that's what this letter is here. The mystic Greek philosophy. Some say this is a form of early Gnosticism. Have you ever heard the term Gnosticism? Gnosticism comes from a root word, which is gnosis, which means to know. Gnosis is for knowledge. And so Gnosticism, um, I'm not going to do a whole you know, in-depth explanation of it, but essentially what Gnostics were saying was for you to be spiritual or for you to be right with God, you had to have some sort of special knowledge that could only be revealed to you in these like esoteric sort of weird ways right? And you might be listening to me carefully and thinking, that sounds kind of like the New Age movement today. It's very similar to the New Age movement today. Now, they believed in a nutshell that all matter was evil, right? So anything created, anything in this created universe, they believed was evil, and they believed God alone was good, right? So if you think through this, they obviously had a real big problem with people saying that Jesus Christ was God. Can you see why? If they believe all things that are created are evil, every created being, every created thing you can touch is evil, then they believe there's no way that God could become a man. So what they held to was that Jesus was not God, but he was some sort of higher being, sort of like an angel, and in their view, angels were needed to reveal this special knowledge to man in order for man to sort of be initiated into the things of God. So Jesus was important in that realm, but he was sort of like an angel. So along with this, they worshiped angels. You know, they did angel readings. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Stay away from those things, by the way. Those are not biblical. But they worshiped angels. They thought Jesus was less than God. And so in their view, Jesus was not supreme. And I want you to get that word in your mind, supreme. Jesus was not supreme. The supremacy of Christ was missing in their theology. Now, the Jewish legalistic influence in the Colossian church, 
it looked like this. They were saying Christ isn't enough. So not like the Greek, you know, the philosophical version where Christ is not supreme. This one is Christ is not sufficient. Christ is not sufficient. Okay. They were saying faith in Jesus is fine, but you need to keep the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to be, uh, keep the Jewish diet. You need to observe the Sabbath. You say, wait a minute, there are people today that say you have to worship on the Sabbath. Yeah, it's a form of this sort of thing. And Paul will actually speak to that uh, in this letter. So they brought in the observance of rituals, of asceticism, fasting, all these different things. And they were saying that these things weren't just good to do. They were saying that these things were required for salvation, that they were required to have a spiritual life. So you've got this Greek influence that Jesus is not enough. He might be helpful. He's revealing esoteric knowledge somehow to us in some way or another, but he's not God. He's not supreme. And then the Jewish influence is saying he's not sufficient. You have to have Christ plus the sacraments, right? And so Paul speaks to both of these things. In short, Jesus was not enough. Now, the Holy Spirit deals with this subject, I believe, because, you know, in that world then and in this world that we live in today in Mason City and Clear Lake in 2022, the world is challenging the truth that Christ is supreme and that Christ is sufficient. That's really the theme of the book. If you're taking notes, it's Christ's supremacy and sufficiency. And this is such a needed book for some of us because so many philosophies have crept in and got a hold of our hearts, even in just little ways. We start to think that we need something more than Christ. And through this study, through the Colossians, we're going to have our hearts you know, taken back to the simplicity, the sufficiency, and the supremacy of Christ. And you're going to find great relief and great hope. It's going to produce great things in our lives. Now, the relevance today, I, I mean, I kind of touched on it. People are asking this, this question today, especially more and more. Um, it seems like it's getting more and more prevalent. Is Christ enough? Is Jesus enough for salvation? Is Jesus enough for the spirituality and holiness that God requires from us? Is Jesus enough, you know, to, to live a life that's pleasing God? People are asking, is Jesus enough to transform my life? Or do I need other philosophies? Do I need other books? Do I need these other books that other people have written to try to come, become whole in life? Do I need what man says to be whole? <coughs> people are asking today, is Jesus enough to be content and to live a stable life? People are asking today, is Jesus enough for a godly marriage? Is Jesus enough for a godly home life? Is Jesus enough for church life? Is Jesus enough to have a meaningful relationship with people? Many cults and secularists attempt to diminish Jesus. This letter gives Jesus true identity. The church is adopting new age extra biblical practices, um, you know, transcendental meditation, yoga, centering prayer, all these other different things. They're adding to the simplicity of what the scripture says and saying these things can somehow improve our spirituality. Some of the church today acts like, and I want you to think about this carefully. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the church today acts like special revelations, dreams, and visions are required to have the deeper spiritual life. 
that somehow there are Christians that are like real Christians and somehow everybody, there's just everybody else. You know, like there's those Christians that they're not even filled with the spirit probably because they don't have these, every time they show up to church, they're not talking about this dream that God revealed to them and this special word that they have. Oh, I got a word from the Lord and, and you know, and stuff like that. Like they, and, and so they're, they're presenting this thing that there's like different ranks of spirituality. And that's a very Gnostic sort of thing. It's crept into the church as the word of faith movement and, you know, hyper charismatic sort of movements. Another reason this is really relevant is in this information overload age. We are put in this endless quest for that which will satisfy us, right? Isn't that reflected in how long people can scroll through some feed waiting and waiting for, you know, it's like, I've seen a picture of your cat. I've seen this. Ooh, two for one right now on shoes at TJ Maxx. And they, you know, they just keep, and they're waiting and they, and they scroll and scroll. And you're like an hour's gone by. And I've just kept on scrolling all this information. I'm trying to filter it and say, what is sufficient? What is good enough? What do I, I need something. I'm empty. I'm looking for hope. And, uh, 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 and we're hypnotized by this stuff in our culture. It's crazy. This book is completely relevant because it says all of that stuff, it's not necessary. Christ is necessary for what you're looking for. This book tells us that you don't have to be like Bono, who still hasn't found what he's looking for. This is completely relevant too today because people have adopted the psycho heresy that somehow the Bible isn't enough, that I need help from psychiatry, I need help from Freud and Skinner and Erickson and Carl Jung. And I need help from all of these godless atheists in order to live a healthy and a, and a happy and a productive God-honoring life. This book says you don't need any of that stuff. You need Jesus Christ. This book is completely relevant for today. Some of the church is so on its back foot when it comes to psychology and psychiatry that when somebody has a spiritual problem, we take and we send them to the professionals. And those professionals don't know Jesus Christ. What are we doing? We have lost the faith and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. What you're looking for in life is not away from Christ. It's towards Christ in every area of your life. And Paul proclaims that unashamed. The application of the whole book is Paul masterfully points people to Jesus, the all Sufficient, supreme savior. Jesus is enough. You don't need rituals, religion, special knowledge, new age practices, angels, special revelations, diets, special days, atheists to tell you what to think and believe. What you need is Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. Now, maybe um, you're a Christian here today that has drifted from this. Paul's going to help you. The Holy Spirit's going to help you. Maybe you're not a Christian here today and you're like Bono and you still haven't found what you're looking for. Good news. You're going to find what you were made for during this study. Number one, verse number one, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy. We talked about Paul a little bit, and he says that he is an apostle. Now, the word apostle means a sent one. That's all it means. In the Bible, there are apostles with a capital A, and there are apostles with a small a, if you will. And the apostles were the 12 minus one. Who's that? 
Judas, yeah, he got, he took himself out, right? But then Paul became an apostle of Jesus Christ and he met the qualifications. Why? Because he saw the risen Lord. And so that was what the qualification was for an apostle. They had to see the risen Lord and Paul saw him as you, you know, understand carefully by reading the book of Acts and Galatians and other books. So Paul was an apostle with a capital A. And I bring that up today because there are those in the Christian church that call themselves apostles and claim to have authority like Paul or like Peter or like any of the 12, the 11. And they do not have authority over anybody. There's one person with authority in the body of Christ. Get who that is. Jesus Christ. Right. And I just bring that up because there are those today that are positioning themselves as authoritative apostles over other people. I would just caution you, if you see a book written by apostle whoever, that that should just at least send up a little flag in your thinking. He says that he is an apostle by the will of God. What confidence. Are you doing what you're doing today by the will of God? Do you have that confidence? I'm a student by the will of God. When I show up to school, I am bringing Christ into that place. How about I'm a spouse by the will of God. I'm a parent by the will of God. What confidence Paul had. I will tell you, if you don't know that what you're doing and you don't have this confidence, like you're doing it by the way, you can't say I am fill in the blank by the will of God. Seek the Lord. Ask him. Seek him. Don't let go of him until he lets you know. Some people never will have that confidence in their life because they will never put in the work. You know, they don't want to know. They don't want to know that bad. Satisfied in the things of the world. Now, Timothy, he says, is with him. Paul calls him his son in the faith. This was a young man that was converted under Paul's ministry. He became a pastor. Um, Paul wrote First and Second Timothy to encourage him. You hear the expression, um, man, that guy's a real Timothy. When somebody says that about somebody, that he's a great supporter. You know, Timothys are essential to an effective ministry. When you go to a church and you see that there's a pastor and you see that there's somebody working with him that's a Timothy, that church is going places, man. Because, it, you know, the Bible says that we need, as leaders, we need people to hold our arms up in battle. You know, we need people to serve with us and to pray with us and to, uh, you know, to get into battle with us. And that's what Timothy was. He was that kind of guy. Incredibly important to ministry. He says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are in Colossae. Now, to whom is the letter directed? It's directed to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. Now, the word saint, you might have this idea in your mind conjured up of uh, that there are certain humans that are saint. I think, isn't Paul McCartney a saint now? Or wasn't he? I think they made him a saint. Didn't they, didn't they do that? I don't know how that works. What's that? He's a knight. Oh, he's a knight. Oh, but can't you become a saint if you do really good in the Catholic church? Won't they put a label on you and call you a saint? Well, uh, let me tell you what the biblical definition of a saint is, okay? It comes from the word, the root word, which is the word we get the word holy, okay? And now the word holy means to be set apart. That's all the word holy means is it means to be set apart. You could add to it, you could say to be set apart for a special purpose. Now, what it means to be holy is that it's God has set something apart for his purposes. Now, so can you imagine what a saint is then? 
A saint is any Christian. Why? Because you have been selected by God out of this common world, the world of sin and death that's under the control of the devil, and you have been set apart for his purposes. So when Paul says he's writing to the saints, he's not you know, writing to a few special people with their face on a placard. He's writing to the whole church where he says, faithful brethren. See, now this is a hint at what's going on in the letter because he's talking about, he's, he mentions the faithful brethren. And he's, I think he's hinting at not the, not the unfaithful ones, not the ones in the church that have started to adopt these false teachings. They're one and the same though, the saints and the faithful brethren. He's talking about all the Christians at Colossae. But he's hinting at some of you are adapting false teaching in your life, right? So he's saying we need to be faithful. It's built into it. Now, they're in Colossae. This church was planted by the guy named Epaphras and who we'll meet later on. He says in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very typical Pauline greeting. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards you. You could think of it like this. Here's an easy acronym for grace. You guys ever heard this? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's an idea of grace. Salvation given to you as a gift of grace comes from a root word where we get the word charity. You think of charity. Charity is just giving with no strings attached just because you want to give. That's what grace is. God giving to us with no strings attached. Grace is such an important word, you'll understand, because so much of, of, of us as humans, we're, we're trapped in the performance trap. We think that we have to do real well, and the better we do, then the more God loves us. But grace tells us that even though none of us are deserving, because God loves us, he just loves us. He just gives his grace to us just because of who he is. That's really good news to you here today because you know you've bombed it. I know I've bombed it. You know, it's interesting when I say something like that and I look at the faces that are going, yep, yep. And then I look at the faces that are like, I don't get it. You're not paying attention to what the Holy Spirit said to you because the Holy Spirit is saying, you know what? You need the grace of God. (laughs) You need it. You think, well, I'm pretty good. I'm better than this guy sitting next to me. Well, God doesn't look at it like that. God looks at it as all of us next to himself, and we all fall short, so he realizes that we just need his grace, and he gives us grace. And so when Paul greets people, he says, grace to you, you know? And then he goes on and he says, peace. Now, that was the typical Jewish greeting, shalom. But in the Christian context, it brings to mind the peace that Christ bought on the cross, What do you mean Christ bought peace on the cross? Well, God, the creator, the judge of the universe is hostile towards sinners, towards sin. The Bible says he hates sinners. You know, we get this statement where he says, hate this sin, but love the sinner. The Bible, the Old Testament says plenty of places that God hates sinners. I mean, he hates sin and he's going to destroy sinners. Now, Jesus Christ went to the cross and took all the wrath that every sinner deserves upon himself. Now, this hostile God, the God that's hostile towards sin, because he's dealt with sin, 
He can choose now to forgive people that have sinned. And so you see, Jesus really, what he did was he made peace between a God that's going to judge and punish sin. He made peace between him and between us. And so when Paul says peace, that's a big deal. I think, wow, he made peace by the blood of his cross, it says later on in Colossians. He says, grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek scholars, which I am not one, don't ever think of me as a Greek scholar. I can read their commentaries. What this verse looks like in the Greek is these are one and of the same substance. So when he says, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not saying two things. He's saying these are the, of the same substance. Right? And he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord is the word kurios, which um, a good way to think of that is, is master. He's the master of your life. He's the Lord of your life. It's not his first name. Isn't there an artist today named Lord? I think there's a singer named Lord. Like, I don't even, I, but Jesus' first name is not Lord. That's his, that's his title. That Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ today, Jesus is your Lord. He's your master. He dictates what goes on. And then Jesus is the name Joshua, which is, uh, it means Jehovah saves. It's a common name in that day. And then Christ means uh, the anointed one. Christos. It means the one that is anointed and appointed to bring salvation in this case. He is the Christ. He's the one that God has sent to bring salvation. And so Paul greets them with that typical Pauline greeting. You look at the epistles and you find very similar greetings in all of them. Why does, you know, this style of writing, they, they put their names in the beginning of letters rather than the end. Kind of makes more sense, right? You ever get a letter and you read all the way to the end and then you see who it's from at the end and you say, oh, I'd, I'd you know, but, you know, this makes a little more sense. You put your name right in the beginning. Now, very common in epistles would be a section of thanksgiving. And that's what we're going to see in verses three through eight. He says, verse three, we give thanks to God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. So Paul is giving thanks for them and he's praying always. Paul's prayer life, this gives us a little bit of insight into Paul's prayer life. It wasn't just asking God. It was also thanking God. And that's a good application for us. If you want a deeper prayer life, more robust relationship with God, spend time praising God in your prayer life. This also tells us too that, you know, he's giving thanks for them and he lists some good reasons, right? Sometimes all we do is pray when there's something bad. Why not pray good things? When you see something good happening to somebody else, why not thank God for that? Oh, I thank God for the work that you're doing in these people in this church. I thank God for what you're doing to my kids, you know? Notice also that he says he prays for them. Notice that word there, them. He prays for the Colossians, which I mentioned earlier. This is like a, an insignificant church. Now, here's another detail. Paul didn't plant that church. That tells us something else about Paul's prayer life. He only pray for the churches that he planted. He prays for Christians. He prays for the church. Notice how often he does it. He does it always. Now, don't get the wrong idea and think that um, Paul never got up off of his knees. 
But he's saying it's very frequent. This also tells us that you can be praying in different postures than just on your knees in your closet. Although you should have a prayer time that's, like Jesus said, go into your room and close the door and be in private with the Lord. That's a good place. Jesus went away to the mountain and he prayed all night with the Father, just him and himself, all night long. But also you can be praying always. You can be driving your car. Some of you are praying when you're driving the car. You're riding with your spouse and you're like, oh God, please help. (laughs) I'm really challenged by Paul's prayer life here. You know, I tell you what, that when, like the Colossian church, when people are praying for you as a church, when people are praying for the leadership in that church, you can look at a church that's gone somewhere right? I absolutely covet the prayers of people for for me, for my wife, and for this church. I can tell that people pray for us. I can tell. There are times when I'm preparing a sermon and I will send out a text message to my team here and I'll say, will you guys just pray for me? I'm stuck on the sermon. I need help. I am telling you within like a couple of minutes, the flow just starts happening. I'm like, what the people are praying? When you see a church that's thriving and prospering spiritually, you can be sure that there are godly people praying for it. The reverse is true. What's all this Thanksgiving about? Go on in verse three, three and four there. We give thanks to God, Father. And he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ, he's grateful that they have faith In Christ, he consistently thanks God because the Colossians have faith in Jesus. Now, again, this may be alluding to the purpose of the letter. He might be like, I'm really glad that you have faith in Jesus, not in sacraments, not in philosophy, not in Dr. Phil. (laughs) I'm really glad that you have faith in Jesus. (laughs) Their relationship with God was based on faith. That's really encouraging. That's a mark of a healthy church is their relationship with God is based on grace, not on their works. It's based on faith, grace. Faith refers to the vertical component of our relationship. The vertical meaning it's, you know, us and him, right? And now the next thing is Paul thanks them for their horizontal component of their Christian life. He says, and your love for all the saints. The Colossians we see here were commendable in their self-sacrificing love for their church members. The word love there is the word agape. The word agape means an uncaused love. It means a love that you give to people even if they don't deserve it. Agape is more of a verb than it is an emotional feeling. It's more of an action. It's a commitment to serve people regardless of whether they deserve it or not. That's what agape is. That's what God has for us. God has agape towards us where it says God so loved the world. It's the word agape, right? God loves us even though we were undeserving and he expects his Christians to turn around and love the church family. People may not be deserving. That's a real big challenge to Western culture, to us especially, right, in in 2020. Two in Mason City, almost 23. Because we just want to be nice to people that are nice to us. And we go around and say, well, you wronged me, so I'll wrong you. Well, you don't talk to me. Well, I'm going to talk to you. And we walk around bitter like that. But God says, you got to do something completely different than that if you want to call yourself his follower. You need to be like Jesus and not be like the world. The church is supposed to be this wonderful place of 
You come and receive the love of God through people, even though you're a stinker. That's going to make you want to be better. It's going to make you want to be more loving. You feel the love of Christ. You say, oh, I've got to, I can't hold on to this bitterness. I can't hold on to all this bad attitude. I want to become like Jesus. Paul commended them for their love of all the saints. They were being what Jesus said to be. I want you to look at John 13, verses 34 through 35. If you can turn there in your Bible, you should highlight these verses. John 13, verse 34 says, A new commandment I give you. This is King. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, Jesus talking to his people, he says, I give you a new commandment. You'll hear people refer to this as the new commandment. You're saying, well, I, I need to do the great commission. I need to keep the new commandment. I need to keep the great commandment, love my neighbors, myself. Here's the, the new commandment is Jesus said that as his people, that you are to love Christians, particularly your church family, the people that God has right next to you. You are to love them. You are to love them how? You and I are to love how? As Jesus loved us. That's huge, right? How did Jesus love us? The Bible says he serves us unconditionally, right? He, remember, he washed his disciples' feet. Let me ask you, do you come to church to get served or, you know, to be served or to serve? How do you, how do you approach it when you come to church? Do you come to take or do you come to give? Well, Jesus said that his disciples should be people that are coming to serve like he did, to love like he did. That's not, a, that's not a thought process that we have in this church sometimes. I remember one day I saw the hot chocolate box go from full to like nothing because there were a bunch of people that came here to take instead of give anything, you know? That's, I know it's a really rough thing that I'm saying right now. It's really hardcore, but I just want to point out that Jesus made this commandment. And if you're to call yourself a Christian, if I'm to call myself a Christian, Jesus has commanded me to do this. To love like he me. I can't call myself a Christian if I'm not doing these things. Right? I should have no assurance that I am a Christian if I'm not loving. That is the commandment. The, the new commandment that Jesus gives. That's heavy, right? And Paul commends this church because they loved. They did this. They were doing this. Look at verse uh, 35 there of John 13. It says, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how, that's how the world is going to know that you're a Christian is because of the love that you have for other Christians, your church family. It's not because you've got the best music. It's not because you've got the best budget and the campaign and because you feed all the homeless. And it's not because of any of this other stuff, right? It's because of the way that you treat other Christians. Jesus says, that's the calling card for Christianity. That's the, that's the calling card. Let me ask just a real hardcore question. Is that what he would say about us? I think so. I mean, I've had a lot of people come visit this church once or twice, and then they say, man, these people are loving. 
Look at the way they hug each other all the time. They're just, you know, people are loving and serving. And so the, the thing I brought up about the hot chocolate, that was just a, that's not, that's not characteristic of the whole church. That's just characteristic of a few individuals, possibly, I don't know who they are, that think that this is a place to come get rather than to give, you know? If you got a pocket full of hot chocolate right now, is that why you're, you know? <laughs> How does Jesus love? He gave himself up for us even to the point of death. Your best interest was more important than my life. That's, that's how Jesus loves. That's heavy duty, man. Now, your love for all the saints. Going on in verse 5, he says, I give thanks to God because of your faith in Jesus and because of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Man, the apostle Paul can put together a sentence. <laughs> what he's saying here is because of the hope, he's saying that the faith that they had in Jesus and the love that they had for the saints sprang out of the hope that they had, which they got when they believed the gospel when they heard and believed the gospel. What he's saying is, look at it there in verse five, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has also come to you. So the gospel was brought to them, the good news of Jesus, Epaphras. They heard the gospel and they believed it. And that caused hope, right? Look at that very important phrase, because of the hope, which is what? Laid up for you in heaven. You see, a Christian is a person today that has hope primarily because of the gospel, because they know that this life isn't it and heaven is yet to come and that Jesus bought that for you by his blood. And so imagine the difference between a person that has no hope in what's to come and a person that has hope in what's to come. See, the person with no hope in what's to come they try to get satisfied with video games, with mobile devices, with sex, with drugs, with alcohol. They try to get satisfied with career, with golf, with skydiving, with religion, with philosophy, with education. They try to get deeply satisfied with family, with spouses, with cars, their yard. And they're, they're empty. They're ultimately empty. Because trying to make too much out of this world that's just passing away. They don't have the hope deep inside of them that there's something far better than this life ever to come. And they don't live in the daily reality of that hope. And therefore, they turn things that could be good things into God things. And as a result, they walk around empty and depressed and anxious. The devil loves it. Paul said these guys had a hope of what is laid up for them in heaven. So they've got this hope of what's coming. And that hope then causes faith, right? I hear what Jesus did for me and I hear what my destiny is and I have faith and I trust in Jesus because 
He gave his life on the cross to make this happen. I believe, I trust, I have faith. My, ha- my faith is springing out of the hope. And then when I have true faith in Jesus, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. A new commandment I give to you is you love one another as I've loved you. And so if I have this hope, the hope of the gospel, it produces faith, which all true genuine faith leads to love. You see, that's how this works. So I just want to be more loving. Well, do you have the hope of the gospel in your heart? Because you can't love like Christ unless your heart is fixed on Christ. So they have this hope, which is laid up for them in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, when they heard this message... Hope sprang up. They believed. They put faith in this. They trusted in this. And that produced love in their lives. No. He says that this has come to them, which has come to you as it has also in the world. Uh, The whole world there. He's talking like hyperbole. This is the whole Roman world at the time. I always marvel at the fact that the gospel got everywhere and they didn't even have Instagram. You know, they didn't even have TikTok. They had none of these things. None of the technologies that we have, right? But yet the gospel got everywhere. Interesting. And he says it's bringing forth fruit. What he means by that statement, bringing forth fruit, is that um, when you hear the gospel and you love people, then you take them a fruit basket. Now, some of you don't, don't even know that I'm joking. <laughs> No, producing fruit means that when people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that lives are getting transformed. People are changing. People are coming out of doom and gloom and coming into joy and security and stability, right? People are coming out of listless, anxious, depression, anxiety, all this stuff. They're coming out of all that stuff and they're coming into healthy mental health and spiritual life. They're getting transformed. Addictions are falling off. Habits are falling off. Idolatry is falling off. And lives are being transformed. That's the fruit of the gospel. Paul says it's happening all over. This has been happening with them since the first day that they heard it and they knew the grace of God. They learned that God saves by grace through faith, not by works. That God has condescended down to save wretches like me as a gift, and this produced this all in their life because they were that stoked about this fact in their life. Now, verse 7 says, You, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow saint, uh, servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul is saying the gospel, he came, you know, it came to you through Epaphras, and Epaphras also told us about your love uh, that the Holy Spirit is produced in your life. Fun fact, this is like the only place that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the whole book of Colossians. You say, is the Holy Spirit not important? No, actually the Holy Spirit said himself, he says, when he comes, Jesus said he will bear witness of Jesus and not of himself. So in true Holy Spirit fashion, Jesus is the focus of the book. Epaphras, 
Interesting guy. You know, he probably ran into Paul. Remember, what, remember in the book of Acts when it said Paul rented out the hall of Tyrannus and he preached like day and night. He was making tents all day, working his day job. And then all night long, Paul preached five, six, seven hours every day of the week. And Epaphras probably got saved and went back to Colossae, Colossae, some pronounce it, and he planted a church in his house. I bring that up because sometimes we think the people that can do ministry are, you know, people like uh, the Apostle Paul and Peter. But this is just a dude that heard the gospel and he thought it was so important that he went back and he told his hometown about it and a church sprang up and he pastored it and he was faithful to it, right? Maybe God's calling you to do that. It's a great example. The Bible calls him a faithful minister. Wouldn't you love it if the Apostle Paul called you a faithful minister? Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love that if God called you that? God said, look, you, the life that I gave you, the sickness you had to deal with, the problems you had to deal with, all of that stuff you took and you were faithful through all of your difficulties and you were a faithful servant, you were a faithful minister. Wouldn't you love to hear that? He declared to Paul their love in the spirit. So here we have the introduction to our study in Colossians. Paul is thankful for this church. In Paul's thanksgiving, we see the marks of a solid church. Did you notice that trinity there? Faith, love, and hope. You say, wait a minute, I've seen those other places in the Bible. First Corinthians, right? Faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love, right? Paul meant a lot when he said these words. As we conclude here, I just want you to think about this. Faith and love spring out of hope, and hope comes from believing the gospel and treating that in your heart as if that is sufficient, right? If your heart is all clouded up today thinking that you need something more than Jesus, that you're just not seeing the results from Jesus and from his word that you want to see in your life and things aren't going, you've, you've done what, these, what this church was really in danger of doing and getting worse in. And I guarantee you that you're, you're not happy. You're not happy in that state. Guarantee that you know something's missing. And so you can have that hope restored in your life by believing and trusting this very simple message that Jesus Christ died for your sin, to forgive you of your sin, that you're forgiven, that you stand complete in him. You have all things given to you pertaining to life and godliness. You believe that Christ is enough. We sang that song, um, Christ is enough for me. And I wonder if we peered into your heart while we're singing that song, if, you, that, if that's true. I mean, I'm not trying to be a tough guy, but I mean, really is Christ enough? Christ would put Dr. Phil out of a job if everybody got a hold of the truth of Christ, right? Where does this hope come from? It comes from believing the gospel. Maybe today you're short on hope. Maybe that's just what you needed to hear is you need to stop trying to find hope in all these other places and you just need to commit yourself to Christ. What you're looking for does not come by pulling away from Christ. It comes by going towards Christ, full steam, how do you want to get into heaven? Wrapped in like a cocoon of your own comfort? Is that what you want to do? You want to pull up in your lazy boy? I don't want to do that. I want to be like the Apostle Paul that says, run. Run the race as if to win it. Right? What you're looking for is found in Jesus Christ and in service to him and, and giving yourself fully to him. He says, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose your life. 
Some of you are in the process of losing your life. Found in him. It's all found in him. This should motivate, this motivates me. I just want to run towards Christ with every single thing that I have. A God-honoring church marked by faith in Christ, self-sacrificing love for one another, and hope which is produced in those who believe and trust in the good news of Jesus Christ. He is supreme and he is sufficient. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today, God, and I pray bless it to our hearts and I trust that you have spoken, Lord. You've certainly cleared up a lot of things in my life lately. Bless each dear saint here. In Jesus' name.